Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. The last four years have been anything but normal, and the last 24 hours have been no exception. Will President Trump be impeached for a second time? We're monitoring special coverage from NPR. We'll bring you the latest as it happens. You can also watch a video stream of the U.S. House debate. That's today at ctpublic.org. And later we check in with Hearst, Connecticut Media's Emily Munson about what's happening in Washington as the nation prepares for the last days of the Trump administration and the inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden. First, Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy joins us. What questions do you have for him? 888-720-9677. We'll take your calls later in the hour. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Again, Chris Murphy is joining us on Zoom. Senator Murphy, thanks so much for joining. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me this morning. Appreciate it. It's it's hard to believe it's been a week since a violent mob stormed the Capitol. You lead the subcommittee that funds the Capitol Police. We're going to talk up, coming up about how you and your colleagues are looking into what exactly happened to allow this insurrection. But we have to talk about impeachment first. Uh, right now, the U.S. House convening after House Democrats introduced an impeachment charge on Monday. Speaker Pelosi threatened to move forward on impeachment unless the president resigns or Vice President Mike Pence uh, seeks to have the president declared unfit under the 25th Amendment. Uh, Vice President Pence says he will not do so. So I wanted to hear how you uh, look at the last 24 hours. And do you believe the president should be removed from office immediately? Uh, it, it's it's hard to believe that I'm saying this, but uh, the president of the United States is leading a violent attempt to overthrow the government and to install him in power for the next four years, despite the fact that he lost the election decisively. Uh, that is not allowed in a democracy. And his conduct over the course of the last few weeks is absolutely disqualifying in and of itself. Uh, you cannot incite people to violence. You cannot sit back and allow them to riot through the Capitol when you could have made a clear statement to pull them back. You cannot pressure the vice president to act outside of his constitutional authority to try to steal the election for you. None of that is allowed in a democracy. All of that is impeachable. But maybe the most important reason that we need to move forward with removing the president is that it is not clear that we can ha have a peaceful transition of power on the 20th, so long as Donald Trump is still president of the United States. Um, I, I can talk more about this, but I, I do believe that the uh, command structure uh, that is in place for the inauguration has independent authority uh, in order to make sure that uh, the Biden inauguration is, um, is safe. Uh, but at the same time, the president is continuing to do and say things that incite people 
to violence that encouraged them to come to Washington and try to disrupt the proceedings on the 20th. And it's also not clear that you know he won't make decisions in the next seven days that will make it harder for us to defend the city uh, and the buildings uh, on Inauguration Day. So um, simply to make sure that we have a peaceful transfer of power, uh, I think we need to remove the president. And I listen, I hate the fact that I'm saying that. I hate the fact that this is what we are spending our time doing in the lead up to the inauguration of Joe Biden. This is um, the most serious threat to American democracy in all of our lifetimes, um, and we have to treat it as such. So the House Democrats, they have the votes to impeach. So describe, Senator Murphy, what happens in the Senate before and after January 20th? So it is up to Mitch McConnell as to whether we begin proceeding uh, on impeachment as soon as the House uh, passes those ar- those articles. Um, there's nothing stopping the Senate from expediting those proceedings. And there, of course, has been reporting in the last 24 hours that Senator McConnell may be willing to uh, support impeachment. Um, it is also possible that we process those articles after the election. Obviously, that's you know less consequential. Um, it, it doesn't require us to do it immediately after the president is gone. But as part of an impeachment proceeding, you would normally disqualify or you would have the opportunity to disqualify someone from future office. And I think there you know, may be the need to do that and the desire to do that. Um, on behalf of both Republicans uh, and Democrats. So let's see what happens today. You may have a sizable number of Republicans supporting to uh, impeach the president. And if that's the case, um, it may be that McConnell decides to take the articles uh, up sooner rather than later. Mm. And so if uh, this uh, Senate trial moves forward, even after January 20th, the Constitution still allows the Senate to convict a former president? We we certainly could. Uh, and again, that often comes with consequences that last beyond um, uh, the president's term, like disqualification from um, from running in the future. Um, listen, I, I think it's critical to get the president out of the Oval Office right now because he is leading an insurrection against the United States government and he is doing things every single day to make it more likely that there's going to be violence next uh, week. Um, But I also believe that even if we don't get to the impeachment resolution until after the election, um, there do there does have to be uh, accountability here. Um, You know, from what I know of modern history, societies that have these kind of rebellions um, that don't go through an accountability phase that just excuse it uh, are essentially destined to continue to go through uh, that kind of insurrection, insurrection, that kind of seditious behavior. So obviously we've got to hold everybody accountable that stormed the Capitol. Um, but I think in some way, shape or form, it's also important to hold the president accountable for uh, what he did, uh, not just on Wednesday, but on the days surrounding Wednesday to um, you know, make uh, that event uh, such a tempest. Let's talk about what happened um, before this mob descended on the U.S. Capitol, Senator. Uh, the president uh, holding a rally a short distance from the Capitol at the same time as its vote count was happening, the certification. He got his supporters riled up about the election, again, repeating uh, his claims that the election results were fraudulent. We know that is not true. He, they then told him, they told 
them to go to the Capitol, but he didn't tell his followers to fight with police or to smash their way into the Capitol building. Has that left the president any plausible deniability here? I I, I don't think so. I I mean, read the sum total of his words. I I mean, throughout that speech are all sorts of signals to that crowd um, to engage in violence. He says that, you know, you, you cannot be weak at this moment um, as he's telling them to march on the on the Capitol, uh, a crowd that was clearly already uh, l- sort of lathered into a, a, a furor. Um, I mean, it was just common sense that if he whipped them up into a frenzy and then told them to march on the Capitol at the exact moment that we were certifying the results, um, that something terrible was going to happen. And he had access to information telling him that there were people in that crowd who were ready for violence. I mean, it wasn't as if the FBI hadn't collected information that the president could see uh, to know what the intention of many in that crowd uh, was. So uh, he clearly had a responsibility um, to keep that crowd there or to not call them in the first place. And then, of course, he continued to make the situation worse. Literally, as the battle was on at the Capitol, he tweeted out, Um, uh, an attack on Vice President Pence Um, at the very moment that he should have been calling these people back, telling them to stand down. He whipped them up further, leading to their chant for the hanging of Mike Pence, who was in the building at the time, who narrowly escaped. Public reporting from the Washington Post suggests that his staff was begging him uh, to send out communication in those early moments to have the crowd turn around and he refused so over and over um he had a chance to do the right thing he did not um and now five people are dead uh and we are potentially on our way to uh, more violence next week you're hearing connecticut u.s senator chris murphy here on where we live you can join us 888-720-9677 today another historic day uh, the possibility again that president trump could be impeached for a second time Uh, the house convening at this hour a vote expected later today we're going to be offering you special coverage from npr you can also watch the house debate at ctpublic.org pam is calling in from stonington pam go ahead Hi. Uh, thank you, Lucy. Um, first, I want to say thank you to all the elected officials and appointed officials who have done their job in spite of all the chaos. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, my question is, um, what are we doing to protect Connecticut's capital? Because I understand there have been threats against all 50 states' capitals. Uh, thanks for the question. It's obviously a very important one. Uh, I have spent time, uh, extensive time on the phone this week with Governor Lamont, with uh, Commissioner of Public Safety Ravella, who oversees the state police, uh, and with the uh, FBI office here in Connecticut. Um, you know, clearly, there have been these national calls for marches. Uh, on every state capital. Um, We have not seen uh, a lot of traffic here in Connecticut, organic traffic here in Connecticut about um, a violent protest um, at our state capital, but we should expect 
that something will occur this weekend uh, or leading up to the 20th. Uh, and so uh, I and the governor are taking this very seriously. We've been uh, in contact with the FBI to get the best information that we can uh, about intel uh, on these protests. Uh, and we will make sure uh, that we have uh, assets at the state capitol over the weekend to uh, make sure we can uh, defend it. Again, this is why the president needs to be impeached. I mean, right now, the president should be on TV every single day uh, telling his supporters that, in fact, the election was not stolen, that Joe Biden is the rightful next president of the United States, and that they should stand down. Instead, the president is doing exactly the opposite. Yesterday, you know, he made several comments yesterday uh, about how there were going to be consequences if the House proceeded with impeachment, which, again, is just further invitation for his supporters to engage in violence. If he if he has you know, any ability to plausibly deny that he knew what was going to happen on Wednesday when he was riling them up, he has no deniability now. He knows exactly what their intentions are. And so anything he says um, uh, about potential consequences uh, due to the actions of the legislature to hold him accountable um, are likely going to lead to more violence. Uh, so we're taking steps here in Connecticut uh, to protect ourselves. Uh, I think right now we're lucky that we are not seeing the level of activity um, a, with respect to a march or an assault on the state capitol that you know we, we, we did prior to last Wednesday in Washington. Senator, we talked about uh, this conspiracy again that was elevated, uh, especially after the election, that this election was fraudulent. Uh, there are many Americans uh, who believe this, many of them Republicans, uh, and uh, they believe what Donald Trump and other uh, Republican colleagues in your U.S. Senate have said. And so I'm wondering how you respond to the president's argument that impeaching him will further that anger and division. This is something that House Republicans also said on the floor uh, yesterday. Well, it is important to repeat over and over again that um, there was no fraud. Um, there was there's no evidence that this election was stolen from Donald Trump. The president has litigated this question 60 different times. He has lost decisively on every count because there is no evidence. And the things he talks about are literally invented out of whole cloth. This idea that there were um, 5,000 felons who voted in Florida uh, or that the voting machines were uh, designed to award more votes to Joe Biden. All of those things are literally just inventions of his mind or his deranged enablers' minds. None of them uh, are true. What's true is that President-elect Biden won decisively. He won by 7 million votes. Um, uh, he, he won a clear majority in the Electoral College. Your question is, what about this argument that um, it would be divisive um, to hold President Trump accountable? Um, well, that's nonsense. Um, when somebody commits a crime in this country, um, we hold them accountable. We don't let them go free because holding them to account would be divisive. No, we hold them to account because, first, we want to make sure if they're truly dangerous, they don't commit more crimes. But second, because holding people accountable is a deterrent to others to not do the same and not engage in the same behavior. And that's why you have to hold this president accountable. First, he is likely going to commit more crimes over the next 
uh, week. He, he is engaged in the business of riling people up to march on the cap- Capitol again. And that's reason number one why he has to be removed. But second, um, we need to make it clear that you can't do these things. You, you can't try to steal the election. You can't try to disqualify the votes of millions of Americans. You can't lead a, a, a violent assault on the temple of democracy. Um, we need to hold President Trump accountable as a deterrent to that kind of behavior in the future. And, and, and that's what America is built on. Um, norms, laws, and accountability for people who violate those norms and laws. Uh, before we take a break, Senator, you talk about the importance of accountability. What about accountability for your Senate colleagues, uh, Senator Hawley and Cruz, among others, that supported this rhetoric that the election was a fraud? They continued to lead efforts to try to decertify the Electoral College count, even after uh, what happened on January 6th, uh, once the mob was cleared out. How, would you support expelling them? I'm, I think it's important for us to have a conversation in the Senate about accountability for them. I, I have not called for their expulsion. I, I think this is a trickier question uh, than the question surrounding what Donald Trump did uh, that day. Um, I do think there has to be some uh, accountability, and that can range from censure to expulsion. Um, but you are right to point out that it isn't just uh, that these individuals um, – created this expectation that day that um, these protesters could stop the certification. Um, they continued even after five people were dead. Josh Hawley had the chance to stand down and not offer the second objection uh, later that evening, but he did, which just provided more fuel to this movement. I also think it's important to not limit this question to just Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. Um, you know, there were House members that were tweeting out the location of Nancy Pelosi that day. Um, Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the House Republicans, was supportive of this effort to overturn the election, which is very different than Mitch McConnell, who gave a heroic speech uh, on Wednesday, making it very clear where he stood. So I, I think I'm not sure yet um, how accountability should be delivered to my colleagues. Um, but I also think it shouldn't be limited to, you know, just one or two senators. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today, Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. We're going to take your calls after the break. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. My guest today, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Right now, the U.S. House is convening to consider voting to impeach the president. That vote could happen later today. Connecticut Public Radio will bring you special coverage from NPR all day. You can also watch the House debate at ctpublic.org. Now, do you have a question for Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. Uh, Pete's calling from East Granby. Pete, go ahead. Hello. Yes, go ahead, Pete. 
Okay. Um, uh, given the problems with uh, mail-in voting in uh, several states, whether you think it was fair or not, what can be done to standardize mail-in voting so that it doesn't happen again, like needing a national universal voting ID card? And a little bit more to that question, do you think that the pre- that you, Senator, and the press have the responsibility to investigate and report on all questions of voting issues so that us, the voters, can see what the press says as without evidence, maybe a radio or a TV program where voters could get the uh, questions answered with facts? Senator Murphy? Well, I I mean, I I guess I have not seen the evidence of major problems with mail-in voting um, that the caller identifies. And in fact, this was a primary allegation of the president that there was fraud attached to mail-in voting across the country. Um, He wasn't able to prove that allegation in uh, any of the cases that he filed um, in a state like Georgia, which was one of the closest. There was a audit made of all of the mail-in votes in one of the most populous counties, and they found, you know, no evidence uh, of, uh, of, of, of fraud. Uh, and so, you know, this was a narrative that the president, you know, built ahead of time before he had any evidence. He, he started this claim of mail-in voting being fraudulent, you know, early on, I, I think as a pretext to be able to um, argue that the election was um, uh, was illegitimate, uh, no matter what the r- results were. Um, and unfortunately, there haven't really been any facts to back that up. We have mail-in voting in Connecticut, uh, absentee ballot uh, voting. We expanded the ability of people to do that this time around. And we had no evidence of fraud in Connecticut. There are many states that have been doing it for years. The president himself votes uh, by mail-in uh, vote. Um, so I, I just sort of reject the premise of the question um, as to whether the federal government has an obligation at this point. Um, again, absent you know actual verified evidence of fraud, I, I'm, I think that a big federal investigation would just frankly confirm these conspiracy theories um, and frankly rob from states what is their responsibility to conduct elections. Um, a lot of Republicans uh, you know, oppose the president's efforts to steal this election and to decertify the electoral college votes because they know the Constitution really doesn't give the federal government the power to run elections. That's what the state's supposed to be in charge of. So I guess, you know, to me, the best way to disabuse people of this belief uh, that the vote was somehow rigged is to just draw attention over and over and over again to the fact that there is no evidence of that. Um, if we were to hold a federal investigation, I'm not sure even what we would be investigating because there there aren't any claims. There isn't any evidence. Um, we would just be being asked to prove a negative. Uh, and that's a really difficult thing uh, to do. I just think we continue to talk about the fact that the president has made this up. He has presented no evidence because there is no evidence. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. Again, to ask Connecticut U.S. Senator Murphy a question, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Let's talk about, again, 
what happened on January 6th, Senator, and now looking into how this happened. I mentioned that you uh, lead a subcommittee uh, that is responsible for funding the Capitol Police. Uh, you've talked about radical reform of this law enforcement agency that protects uh, uh, Congress and the Capitol grounds. And so what needs to happen next? Well, listen, I, I think we are going to learn um, what went wrong on Wednesday. We already have some idea. Uh, I think the greatest failing was the um, lack of action on intelligence. We clearly knew the FBI had information about individuals who were planning violence that day, uh, and yet there wasn't a National Guard presence there in the way that there was a National Guard presence at the Capitol for the Black Lives Matter protests, um, which posed, uh, you know, a, a minuscule threat to the building compared to what happened on Wednesday. Um, so, you know, what I have been focused on in the last few days is making sure um, that we have the ability to have the military defense of the Capitol um, be much more robust and arrive much more quickly than it did on Wednesday, because I just want to be honest, you know, we have 1600 Capitol Police officers um, and anytime there is a violent crowd of 10,000 outside that building, um, unless the Capitol Police is prepared to fire on those protesters, um, they are going to be outmanned. So we need to have surge capability to protect the Capitol. That's got to come from the military. It should have been there ahead of time. But given that it wasn't, it also shouldn't have taken four hours for it to arrive. So um, it's about acting on intelligence, getting guard personnel there or other military personnel there ahead of time if there's any chance of violence, and then being able to um, bring in military personnel within 30 minutes or 60 minutes um, when something um out of the ordinary is is happening. Obviously, there's going to be some I think, more detailed investigations into you know why you see these videos of Capitol Police officers sort of walking away or leaving doors open. At the same time, um, there is all sorts of video showing Capitol Police officers and municipal police officers engaged in a vicious, ferocious fight to defend the building. So I don't like this narrative that has been spun up um, about sort of broad um, uh, malfeasance amongst the Capitol Police. Um, most of them acted heroically that day to try to defend the building. Um, a, a lot of them got very hurt in the process. A Congress is fully responsible for the oversight of the Capitol Police as well as funding this law enforcement agency. What happened on January 6th, does that point to the fact that there needs to be some real change in how Congress oversees the Capitol Police? I think one of the things, you know, we're learning is that, you know, there are um, there, there's not a unified command structure when it comes to decisions. Um, you have a sergeant in arms of the Senate. You have a sergeant in arms of the House. You have a chief of Capitol Police. Uh, apparently, not only do they all have to agree um, on how to respond to a violent insurrection, but you also have to get members of the police board to sign off. Apparently, what delayed the National Guard's arrival on Wednesday in part was that the chief of police had to go get sign off from his board of directors, which is nonsensical in the middle of a of a ongoing assault on the building. So, yes, I think we have to look at the governance structures when it comes to uh, security um, and, and make some reforms. 
Again, you can join our conversation with Senator Chris Murphy, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. I mentioned that you are a Senator, Chris Murphy, but you're an author as well. Uh, in the last year, your book, The Violence Inside Us, uh, came out. And I read this book uh, before this interview, uh, wanted to get uh, more insight into your motivations to tighten gun laws in our country. But then January 6th happened. And I'm wondering, when you look back at how your book uh, traced the violence in our country, the history of militias, the cycle of in-groups or majority populations targeting out-groups or people of color through violence or policy, and the fact that when we look at violence in our country, it's often intertwined in who has political power and who gets to exercise that power. Thinking about all of the time you spent on this question of violence in our history and thinking about what happened on January 6th, I mean, what have you been mulling over in your mind about how we got to this place? Well, it is true. I mean, I I, I wrote this book um, called The Violence Inside Us as an outgrowth of the work that I've done around gun violence. But I decided to write a book that attacks a much broader question, which is um, why human beings are so violent, why America is a, 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 a more violent place than uh, others. Um, and, you know, what I learned in you know extensive research for the book is not shocking. It is that, you know, human beings have inside of them a predilection towards uh, violence. We use violence and have throughout our species history routinely in order to protect ourselves and in order to advance socially and culturally uh, and economically. Uh, and it is particularly used by dominant groups uh, in order to try to assert dominance uh, o- over uh, what I refer to in the book as, as, as outgroups. Um, and so the mob violence we saw on Wednesday is frankly not unfamiliar uh, to this country uh, or to the human race. In fact, what is exceptional is that over the course of the last several hundred years, we've seen much less mob violence uh, than we did 500 years ago or a thousand years ago. And it's because we put into place a set of of rules and norms um, that give people other opportunities to protect themselves or advance their interests uh, other than violence. Um, and, and so I think that that does require us to have a, a broader conversation here about why these individuals did this. Why did they get to this point of desperation in which they were uh, beating police officers with American flags? Um, And I think there is a a sense of powerlessness in this country that many people have today. There's a lot of folks who have given up on democracy, who just don't think that it can actually deliver real results for them. Um, And they're starting to contemplate doing really radical, desperate things. I I don't say that to excuse or rationalize anything that happened on Wednesday. But I think we'd be fools if we didn't try to think about the root causes here. Um, And and this book, to me, um, you know, taught me, um, and I think if you read it, you will learn um, that if you don't create nonviolent pathways for people to advance their interests, um, secure their family, then they are going to turn to violence. Uh, And I think that that is part of the story as to what happened on Wednesday. What would you say to Americans, uh, even uh, your constituents in our state, Senator Murphy, who look at what happened on January 6th and say, that is white supremacy on view? 
Well, I'd say that they're right. And again, that's the other sort of lesson from this book is that in America, violence has been used over and over again by white majorities to subjugate um, African-Americans. All that's happened is that the um, form of that violence has changed from slavery to lynchings to incarceration. Um, And um, this privilege that these protesters had, the ability to you know, roam the halls of the Capitol without fear of arrest, only 12 people were arrested that day, is a sign that we still have a just unconscionable double standard when it comes to the violence that is um, directed at Black protesters when they are peacefully marching versus the lack of violence or the lack of arrest that even meets um, white protesters when they are engaged in the kind of outrageous behavior we saw on uh, on Wednesday. So it is it is a, what happened on Wednesday is a sign of privilege. Um, and it is a, another reminder of um, how far we have to go uh, in, in order to um you know, equalize the treatment of people who are um, acting out, speaking up, uh, regardless of their race. U.S. Senator Chris Murphy here on Where We Live. Linda from Bethany has a question. Linda, go ahead. Um, I'd like to know if there's any chance of meaningful gun legislation. Well, as you know, there are calls right now for um armed marches. Um, you know, it doesn't appear that there were a lot of firearms, at least visible in the protest on Wednesday, but that was not um, a advertisement for an armed march. The advertisements that are out there for um, this weekend and next week call for people to be armed. And of course, in this country, you can bring to a protest a weapon that is just as powerful as the weapons that the military holds. In Connecticut, um, you know, we do allow for open carry. And while you can't bring a weapon onto the Capitol grounds, um, you can in other places. Uh, and, and so I've always been worried that, um, you know, our um, inability to control the spread of military style weapons means that our law enforcement and police, even our military, can be outgunned uh, if there is ever um, a, a real open conflict. So I hope that um, we are going to uh, pass stronger gun laws. And uh, obviously the results in Georgia uh, allow us to bring up a universal background checks bill uh, before the United States Senate. Uh, I think we can pass it. Uh, I think we can get signed into law uh, at least a requirement that everybody in this country have to go through a background check. Uh, in order to purchase a weapon. And I think that's going to be particularly important after uh, Wednesday. You are, by the time this is all done, you know, likely to have maybe a thousand people who will have charges brought against them. Uh, I want to make sure that not a single one of them is able to go out and buy a firearm uh, after they've been charged with sedition. Uh, And uh, I think our chances are decent at passing that in the upcoming Congress. Nick's calling in from Oxford. Nick, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Senator. Um, my question is this. Is there any way that legislation can uh, can happen that would, I don't know, put the uh, teeth of the law behind all of this um, lying and mistruths that have been, been, been told? I'm all for free speech, but it seems to me that, uh, especially 
uh, all the lies surrounding the election and uh, is, is like yelling uh, fire in a theater. There has to be some accountability, and it seems that it's just too individualized to fight these lies. I'm also thinking about the guy in Newtown who's devoted his life fighting Alex Jones and Infowars over his lies and winning in court. And, and the poor state of Georgia and those Republicans who are just defending their election rights. I mean, it's just, it's just gotten so out of control. Some standard needs to happen in regard to the media and, and of course, the legislature. I, I think this is a really tough question. I mean, you can't pass a law, uh, you know, against telling a mistruth. Um, what we rely on is the public square uh, in order to vet truth from fiction. And what we have traditionally relied on is our political leaders uh, to be committed to telling the truth. And it is just extraordinary, um, you know, how, you know, so many smart people who have ascended to national leadership positions in the Republican Party are just so willing to lie to the American people. Um, I do support the ability of um uh, internet platforms uh, to better regulate content. These are private companies. You know, there's nothing in the Constitution that says a private company uh, that offers a, a dialogue platform online uh, has to continue to allow people to spread dangerous mistru mistruths. And so, you know, I think that, you know, Twitter, uh, to a lesser extent, Facebook, have been a, a, a little bit more willing recently uh, to take down some of the stuff that is blatantly false. And maybe after last Wednesday, they will be more vigilant about that because we've been telling them for years that by allowing for these dangerous lies to be told over and over again, you are putting the nation's security at risk. They didn't seem to believe us. Uh, maybe they will believe us now. Um, so I don't know that this is a matter of, of, of new laws being passed, um, but I do think the private sector can can help us in trying to you know make sure that there is you know some uh, you know, some vetting happening of, of, of these outright clear lies uh, about the election, for instance, being stolen from Donald Trump. Senator, we're almost out of time, but I have to ask, because you also sit on the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, when we look at uh, what has happened to our democracy in the last uh, couple of weeks, even after the election with uh, these claims, these fraudulent claims that the election was a fraud and was stolen from President Trump, how do you think this impacts the world's view of our country? What worries you more in the next weeks and months? Attacks from domestic terrorists or foreign terrorists? Well, domestic terrorists. I mean, right now, um, uh, right now we have uh, an existential threat posed to this country by domestic terrorists that are being stirred up uh, and organized by the president and his allies, which is why he has to be removed from office as quickly as possible. Um, at the same time, this is devastating for uh, our reputation in the world. It greatly weakens us. Uh, and while Joe Biden is the perfect person to help rebuild America's image in the world, um, if Donald Trump remains a, uh, a, a political figure in this country who continues to foment rebellion uh, over the course of the next four years, um, that will continue to be a stain on this country, which is why 
you know, I hope um, these reports of Mitch McConnell and other Republicans beginning to understand the danger of allowing him to uh, continue to run and be in charge of their party uh, are true. Um, we have a lot of work to do to rebuild our reputation in the world, to remain influential. People are watching this with their mouths agape. Um, and I think, you know, the first step is to uh, have a peaceful transition of power, um, to do this the right way, to, you know, not run and cower in a corner, but to um, put on a show on January 20th, show the country, show the world um, that these terrorists cannot beat us. They cannot win. I will be there with bells on uh, at that inauguration. I believe it will be safe. Uh, and I believe it will be a day in which we can begin to turn the page on what has been an ugly four years uh, and a devastating last few weeks. That's Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Senator Murphy, thank you for joining us. We hope to talk with you soon. Thanks. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is where we live. Uh, coming up after the break, we're going to have some analysis from Washington correspondent for Hearst Connecticut Media, Emily Munson, join us. And again, starting at 10 o'clock, we're going to go to NPR special coverage of the House debate as they consider impeaching President Trump for the second time. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We just heard from U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. Uh, we know the U.S. House of Representatives is meeting now, ex a vote expected later today on whether to impeach President Trump. We will bring you special coverage from NPR right after this show. And you can also watch the House debate at ctpublic.org. Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Emily Munson, Washington correspondent for Hearst Connecticut Media. Emily, welcome back. Thanks for having me on the show, Lucy. Emily, I wanted you to respond to what uh, Senator Murphy shared at the very end of that interview, where he talks about being confident that the Capitol, that D.C. will be ready to have a peaceful transfer of power on January 20th. What are you seeing and hearing down there? Well, what we're seeing right now is that the U.S. Capitol is a very different place than what it was last Wednesday. There's now um, a large fence encircling the Capitol. There are members of the National Guard who are stationed at the building um, at all times. Uh, they've been distributed uh, weapons and other protective gear. So there's a high level of readiness at the building. Um, and in addition, last night, um, magnetometers were installed um, outside the House chamber which would check um, lawmakers for weapons or metals that they might attempt to bring into the chamber as an extra precaution. That is an entirely new thing. Um, and many lawmakers, um, most of whom were Republicans, uh, objected to that. They said it slowed down the voting process and uh, you know, they didn't like being scanned going into the House chamber as if they were going through the airport and TSA security. But um, so much has changed at the Capitol right now to have readiness right now in case there was any sort of additional threat to the building and to prepare for the inauguration next week. 
I meanwhile, Emily, there have been uh, so many reports after January 6th that there were many warnings about uh, how these uh, protesters uh, may turn violent. Uh, the FBI warning of protests at all 50 states. Uh, there's been reports of the, the NYPD, their intelligence warning about what could have happened, what could happen on January 6th, which we saw happen. And I'm wondering if you can share more about your conversations with our Connecticut delegations about this potential for violence yet again, starting just a few days before Inauguration Day. Yeah, that's correct. Um, in my conversations with members of the delegation, they remain concerned that there will be um, a potential for additional violence over the next week, and particularly on Inauguration Day. Um, President-elect Joe Biden has expressed confidence that the inauguration will be able to go forward safely and that he would um, be able to conduct at least part of that ceremony outside in safety. Um, so I think lawmakers believe that the inauguration will be able to be a safe event, but um, you can see that there have been so many additional measures put in place uh, in order to ascertain that that will happen. I don't think anyone really uh, expected, you know, maybe a month ago, that quite such a high level of security would be needed. And to follow up on your other point, you know, members of the delegation are appalled that there was so much evidence ahead of Wednesday that there was a potential for violence. And yet um, security was not increased um, prior to Wednesday to the point um, to a level at which law enforcement could properly respond to the threat. And, you know, we saw how relatively easily members of the Capitol Police were overrun by the crowd of 8,000 people outside the Capitol building. And there's going to be a huge amount of scrutiny on the law enforcement response to last Wednesday's events. And that scrutiny will be led in part by members of the delegation. Moving to what happened uh, yesterday in uh, the U.S. House and what's expected to happen today, I wanted to ask you, was there a sense that uh, invoking the 25th Amendment that the vice president would agree to this? Was that even realistic? It was a hope by Democrats, certainly, that uh, the vice president would agree to this. But Vice President Pence made it very clear after Wednesday um, that he was not in entertaining this idea. So I think they wanted to take one more step to try to put the ball in Vice President Pence's court, try to pressure him to use the 25th Amendment, um, but he never seriously indicated that he might take that step. And thus, Democrats decided uh, it would be necessary to impeach the president today. How significant is it that we have a Republican representative, Liz Cheney, announcing that she will vote to impeach? Yes, and there are others um, other than Liz Cheney. We now have four House Republicans who, at least four House Republicans by my last count, who have stated that they will vote to impeach the president. And there's about a dozen or more who are considering the idea so it's going to be very interesting when the final vote comes down mid-afternoon uh, to see how many Republicans might join this effort and to see 
kind of language that is used in the floor debate from Republicans about what happened and about the idea of impeaching Trump. Um, the level of bipartisan support today for impeachment could be really influential in whether in how the Senate acts on impeachment and whether they decide to hold a trial immediately and whether Republicans in the Senate uh, decide to join with Democrats in a vote to convict the president. Mm -hmm. Uh, going back to our Connecticut delegation, uh, we know that uh, the Senate, uh, once uh, we, you know move, this moves forward, uh, divided 50-50 with uh, uh, the vice president-elect uh, Kamala Harris being the deciding vote. How will Senator Murphy and Blumenthal's roles change in this Congress, Emily? Do we know? That's a great question. Lucy, this is a very unique scenario to have a 50-50 Senate divide. The last time that that happened was in 2001 and just for a couple months. So this is a very rare situation. And it's going to be challenging for Democrats to pass legislation. Uh, yes, they have a majority, but in some ways it's kind of in name only. Um, the first, one of the first things Democrats will have to do is pass an organizing resolution that um, kind of lays out the rules of the road for how the Senate will operate during this time. And they're gonna need Republican support to pass that resolution. So in essence, it's gonna from the start be a power sharing agreement between the two parties. So what we should expect is there's probably gonna be Democratic leaders of the Senate committees, but the membership of those committees might be equally divided between the two parties so that they'll have to be compromised in bipartisan agreement, even to get something to pass through a committee before it goes to the Senate floor. Mm -hmm. Now, um, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will have the ability to set the agenda on the floor, and that means he could call bills that are supported by Democratic senators like Senator Murphy and Senator Blumenthal, and they're really excited about that prospect but they're going to have to work hard to win some Republican votes um, for those bills uh, because in the Senate, you do need 60 votes to open debate on, a leg on legislation. And, and Emily, we'll have to leave it there. Emily Munson, Washington correspondent for Hearst, Connecticut. Thank you. Today's show produced by Matt Dwyer. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.